Hey everyone, back again. Today we're going to talk about Abel Camus' The Myth of Sisyphus. Now before jumping into it, and before I give my normal before jumping into it rant, this text deals pretty heavily with the topic of suicide, and I'm going to include quite a few links uh, for mental health resources for people in the United States and Canada, where most of you are from, but anybody else in any other country, please uh, look up any mental health resources if you feel like you'd need them or if you're confronting thoughts of suicide because there are people out there that can help and can really help you navigate this time in your life. So as I said, for those in North America, you'll be able to find links in, for all that in the description and anybody else, please uh, do not hesitate to look up those resources that your country or region might offer. Now, before jumping into the actual text, if you want to follow me anywhere other than here, you can find me on Instagram at theory underscore and underscore philosophy or on Twitter at David Guineau. If you found this in podcast form, you're going to be able to find it in YouTube where I sometimes release videos. Or if you found this on YouTube, you're going to be able to find it in podcast form where there shouldn't be any ads. So, oh, and if you're new here, hi, I'm David. I try to explain philosophical texts and ideas in a way to make them accessible to you. So if you're new, like, share, subscribe, tell your friends who knows they might get a kick out of it. If you want to help me out, do all of those things. You can also help me via Patreon or PayPal if you're into that at all, but obviously no pressure. And yeah, don't want to waste any more of your time with that stuff. Let's jump into this essay, The Myth of Sisyphus. Now, it takes a while in this text before we actually talk about Sisyphus, but I want to put the myth out there, at least briefly, in advance. Now, the myth of Sisyphus involves a man named Sisyphus who is condemned to internal damnation where he would be required to push a boulder up a hill and then let the boulder roll back down, follow the boulder back down, roll it up the hill, and repeat that for eternity. And he was condemned to this punishment for having cheated death and for having stolen some of the gods' secrets. Now, the point of this story, to be very short, uh, is that is to demonstrate the kind of the horror of repetition. So if a task is seen as being mundane or repetitive, it could be described as being Sisyphean. That is, it is a task in which it seems like there is no way to progress, like you were just doing the same thing over and over and over again, to no end. But this text, that is the myth of Sisyphus, or Sis the story of Sisyphus, plays a very small role in Camus' text. Instead, Camus begins his text by thinking about why life? Why say yes to life? In the face of the world's irrationality, in the face of the world's incomprehensibility, what is there to do as a human in the face of it? Now, before any metaphysical question can be raised by philosophers or any thinker or any political question or anything, we've all agreed, and this happens every single day, to say yes to life, except in those cases where life becomes unbearable and suicide is pursued in order to escape that life. So this is the question, this is the core of all life, really, for Camus, that is asking, what is it that compels somebody to both say yes to life or say no to life? And how this question, whether one says yes to life or no to life, precedes any other philosophical investigation, because without it, without first asking this question, which we don't do consciously, but by continuing to act every single day, we imply that we have agreed to life, or if we refuted it, then we've said no to life. By doing that, 
we open up the possibility to then ask other questions. But this is the primary question that is asking whether or not to say yes or, or whether or not to say yes to life. Now, prior to Camus, the question about suicide was taken sociologically primarily. So we might think here of the work of Emile uh, Durkheim, who thinks about suicide as being a social event, uh, as being whether or not somebody has a connection to social life, or they might have too much of a connection to social life that causes them to commit suicide, like in the uh, example of altruism. Or they are completely detached from social life, they feel alienated and therefore uh, don't see any connection to the world around them and see therefore no reason to live. Now, in the face of this, Camus wants to ask another question. He doesn't want to look at it sociologically. He instead wants to think about suicide as an individual event or an event that comes to an individual, not something that can be explained in relation to society at large. Because he says that in the act of suicide, what he also calls dying voluntarily, he says that dying voluntarily implies that you have recognized, even instinctively, the ridiculous character of habit, the absence of any profound reason for living, the insane character of that daily agitation, and the uselessness of suffering. Now, this is one possible frame of mind that someone could have in the face of suicide and, and seeking to pursue suicide. Now, I think it's important here to consider the language used when discussing suicide, because there are people that, that are pursuing this question and how the term to commit suicide holds a negative connotation with it. And so it is important, I think, to consider using different language in this case. So using terms instead of committing suicide, saying dying by suicide, or just suicide is uh, often preferred by some people who have experienced those thoughts. And that's just an aside point, I guess, to think about the different possible language here. But in the, to return to the text, Camus is interested in the mind frame of somebody who might die by suicide. What is it that goes through that mind of that person? And this could be really complicated in a number of different ways because there are certain, certainly certain disability scholars who are pursuing questions about suicide or asking questions about suicide, how uh, in some cases it is a way to uh, reclaim oneself, especially in the face of a very oppressive and disavowing medical establishment. Now, with that being said, I am no expert in that field, and I think that this these topics should be taken very uh, carefully. So there are myriad different possible ways of looking at the phenomenon as being an individual thing. So in all that Camus gives us here, it's important to recognize that he's only pursuing a very specific uh, avenue here when discussing suicide. But in a kind of ironic way in how he proceeds here, he seems to consider certain social factors that might contribute to these thoughts. So he says that essentially in a world deprived of illusions, where people are deprived of the memory of a lost home or the hope of a promised land, in an absurd world, the longing for death rears its head, essentially. So for Camus here, in a world of alienation, in a world of oppression, it seems like suicide is a viable option for some people, which to be quite frank, I don't know how that exactly dovetails or connects to or with 
his effort to think about suicide individually and not as a sociological event, not as an event tied to society. But in any case, we proceed here. He says that he, or he ponders, I guess, the relationship between the absurd and suicide, where suicide presents itself as a solution to the absurd. Now, in the face of tyranny, maybe in the face of oppression, especially systemic oppression, where it isn't necessarily so clear as to how it operates on certain bodies, but the effects are felt and the effects are very real. It seems as though any kind of retaliation is impossible. And because that retaliation is impossible, people are put in a situation that simply makes no sense. It is a situation that is absurd. And the image that Camus gives us here to think about that, and it's kind of a, a silly image, but he says, the absurd is where two different points that are incongruent come in contact with one another. So for example, if you tried to attack an army with, with guns and tanks and everything with a sword, you stand no chance. And between these two points is uh, an incongruency between this confrontation that would only lead to a very clear and easy conclusion that is the person with the sword not faring very well, I assume, yet they do it anyways. And that is absurd because the conclusions are already clearly laid out, yet it is pursued anyways because the confrontation is, is unwinnable, but it is pursued anyways. Now in the face of a world that has left people behind or that continually disenfranchises people, either systemically or very much directly, with, with overt oppression, with overt violence, suicide can serve as a solution to that problem. Now, the point of this text is to think about suicide and to imagine a world in which they wouldn't happen and how it is possible to live with the absurd, if it is at all. And Camus quite leaves us with quite an optimistic tone at the end of the essay. He very much wants to imagine Sisyphus, this character pushing this rock up this hill, in an absurd fashion. Sisyphus does this act over and over and over again to a very um, understandable end that is only its means. It is only repeating itself over and over and that is its end, which is absurd for Camus. And he imagines, he wants to imagine the possibility of in that moment or in those moments, Sisyphus being happy. And so Camus wants to imagine a world in which consciousness of the absurd can act as a way or can function to make the absurd livable. Now, by framing it in this way, he thinks about suicide not in terms of somebody butting up against the question of life per se, but butting up against the question of the absurd, whether or not living with the absurd is possible. And the way that he thinks, the reason he thinks about it in those terms is because suicide is not necessarily conducted only by those who say no to life. It, in many cases, is conducted by those who say yes to life. In fact, it is through their absolute love of life that suicide becomes an, uh, an option. And we might think here of Durkheim thinking about altruism, where people who die by suicide, not because they dislike life, but they might have they might love life to such a point that they want to see it maintained for 
as many other people as possible, and that can only happen by them giving up their own life, by dying by suicide. And so an example here might be somebody who, in the face of an impending uh, invasion or, a, or an ongoing invasion of a, of a country, might give up their life in order to try to protect uh, their family or their neighbor's life or, or, or anything like that. And so that is less them saying no to life than it is them saying no to the absurd. The absurd that is or that would be produced in the absolute domination of a people or of, of, of their family or friends or what have you. And being opposed then to what would be produced as the end result, as a, a, a life that, that would be absurd perhaps then becoming a life that wouldn't be worth living. Now, in these acts, in death by suicide, people are not being illogical, according to Camus. In fact, they're being extremely logical, where they have an emotional, intellectual, uh, cognitive response to something, maybe not an event, maybe it's an entire life situation. It could be an event, it could be, it could be anything really. And they follow that thought, that emotion, all the way through, which is really quite logical when, when you think about it. And he calls this a, uh, the absur absurd reasoning, uh, uh, following the logic of the absurd to the point that it becomes, uh, you realize you can't live with it and you pursue the ends of it. So living with the absurd might entail, firstly, for Camus, it might entail a recognition of our mutual nothingness in the face of a universe that is indifferent to us and a world that is indifferent to us as humans to animals that are largely indifferent to us as humans and so on and how we try in vain to try to make meaning of a world that doesn't have meaning in itself and we do it by bringing us together in social groups or religious groups to try to make meaning of the world when in fact we're all alone as humans we all exist in complete isolation in our own bodies, we don't actually have the capacity to join anybody else. We all live very autonomous lives. And so we are confronted with the absurd in that case because it is a losing battle in trying to find meaning in a world or a meaning in, uh, in transcendence because it simply isn't there for Camus. So by first acknowledging this, it might open up the door for us to learn to live with the absurd instead of denying its existence, instead of saying, yeah, sure, we can find meaning in the world. Sure, we can uh, put all our chips into God or put all our chips into society, into social meaning, whatever. He says that maybe the way to live with it is to first, well, first acknowledge it. But at almost all of us, I would assume, have a point when we really consider the absurd, and it might happen for many people, at a later point in life when reflecting, looking back upon life, much like when Sisyphus, after he rolls the rock up the hill and it rolls back down, he looks down upon it, looks back at his future, essentially. By looking back at the, the rock, he sees exactly what he's going to be doing in the future, this endless repetition. And so people, after having completed so much of their life, might look back thinking about that being their future because... You know, most people just keep doing what they've been doing. And in that moment, it is possible that the absurd becomes apparent to them, but they quickly suppress it because it's, it's too much to comprehend, too much to think about. 
And it's perhaps no surprise then that for some, it they don't suppress it. In fact, it overwhelms them. And so there is a potential here for Camus in thinking about um, thinking about the absurd early on to foster our thinking about it in order so that it doesn't surprise us, it doesn't sneak up on us and become um, something that can control us or something that can motivate people to uh, fall prey or to die by suicide. But the absurd is not only realized in looking back upon life. It is very much the reality of any given situation in anyone's life. So it's not just, you know, working the nine to five for 40 years at the end of which you get a year of retirement and begin to think that your whole life just just passed you by and you didn't you didn't do all the things you wanted to do. Camus is very clear that the absurd exists at any single moment that humans come into contact with the world, which happens all the time. And he says, and he tries to, ontologically, so he tries to find a, um, a property or a characteristic of human, human beings, uh, something about their essence. He says that humans have an innate propensity to organize and to understand things. But when we do that, we assume that the thing we're trying to understand, things in the world, things in the universe, are going to be understood and are going to be open to be classified and organized, when in fact that's not the case. So we wrestle with it and we are always butting up against the world in that way, trying to make it make sense to us, when the only sense that we can really extract from it is one that we've inputted onto it, not something that we found in it. And we go so far as to say that this is even the case of uh, uh, physical laws or laws of laws of physics like gravity, which don't exist universally everywhere. And they can't really be said to exist in themselves. They had to be really discovered and, and made clear. Now, this isn't him saying that gravity doesn't exist, but it required an entire organizational effort on the part of humanity to make sense of it, whereas the flower that we might look at and see, and we can all see it, is something that exists in that very moment. And we know that that flower can't really be grasped and understood in the way that the flower itself grasps itself, if it does grasp itself at all. Yet in any case, we try to impose certain logics and certain orderings upon the world. And this is our entering, our ontological state within the absurd because we do not actually attain this. We don't actually ever fully understand the world because the world cannot be fully understood. And he thinks that deep down, we're all kind of aware of this, that there is, uh, it's a losing battle to try to make sense of this world. And so many of us just sink back into, into thoughtlessness because that's quite comfortable. It's quite nice not to think about it. Because when we do think about it, you know, we realize that it is an impossible task. We are completely lost in this world. Yet in both of these cases, one in which we have completely resigned ourselves and the other in which we keep trying vainly, desperately to find meaning in the world, yet can't, in both of those cases, many of us still find the potential to go on, to say yes to the absurd, to imagine ourselves in the Sisyphean task as being happy. Now, prior to Durkheim, or sorry, not prior to Durkheim, prior to Camus, 
existentialists often resorted to some form of transcendence or an appeal to reason to make sense and to solve this paradox that is the paradox that is produced between a, a human that vies and, and thrives in or with reason confronted with a world that is unreasonable, a world that is irrational. Now, these other existentialists would say, oh, well, we can resolve this with God, or we can resolve this by using reason to undo reason. So we uh, apply this rigorous analytic to show that reason is itself futile. But of course, then we are only left, despite the claim that we've done away with reason, we're only left with more reason. You can't completely get rid of it. Just furthering our absurd position for Camus. Now, I don't want to go into a whole big thing about each of the people he talks about, like Jaspers and Girigard and uh, Husserl. I'm going to be quite brief in order to, you know, not go down too many of those routes. And because it's not totally necessary to grasp what Camus is doing here. But in thinking about all of them, he says that they deify what crushes them and find reason to hope in what impoverishes them. Now, looking at Kierkegaard specifically, Soren Kierkegaard, who I've covered in this uh, on this channel, I've done a couple of his texts that you can go check out if you're interested in his stuff at all, but poking at Kierkegaard, Camus contends that the absurd is sin without God. Whereas in Kierkegaard's work, when he thinks about despair and he thinks about anxiety, uh, Kierkegaard views that as an acknowledgement of sin as a way to turn to God, whereas the absurd is a way to turn away from God, or acknowledging the absurd turns us away from God. Because, as the quote said, uh, the absurd is sin without God. The absurd is something that isn't necessarily pleasant, but it doesn't point to there being a God as um, setting the condition for what is good or bad. It is produced only by an incongruency, an incompatibility between two different ideas or points, two different uh, a thesis and, 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 and antithesis, perhaps, that do not uh, exist on the same uh, playing field. They talk past one another, maybe. So whereas for Kierkegaard, one's eternal anxiety, which I think has a better connection to uh, the absurd than despair does, as he, as he uh, mentions it here, but in any case, anxiety for Kierkegaard, to put it quite simply and shortly, and again, I've covered his text on this, if you want more on that, anxiety is the situation that is produced when we acknowledge the impossibility of kind of being seen, uh, being seen well in the eyes of God and to live um, a fruitful life in the eyes of God because we are all living in the shadow of original sin. So the only reason for Kierkegaard, not the only reason, but one of the reasons that we exist in this perpetual state of anxiety is because our inability to live up to really God's wishes. Now for Camus, there is no God. That, that God is, is long gone. Instead, we are existing only and existing with a kind of anxiety in absurdity by being able to reconcile these two contradictory points, our wanting to make sense of a world that is refusing to be made sense of. And this just gets, uh, it gets intensified when we think about, you know, poverty, when we think about um, senseless death and destruction, where, where children die 
in, uh, in certain parts of the globe without having enough food when there are other parts of the world that have enough food to feed everybody on earth. And these absurd facts lead us down a, a path that is quite, uh, quite depressing, I would, I would like to say. But there's no need here to appeal to God, at least according to Camus. It is just understanding that there, a desire is, can't be uh, met. That is, we cannot make sense of a world that is refusing to be made sense of, sensed of, to be made sense of. Now, likewise, Camus is dissatisfied with people like Husserl, who an early phenomenologist, important figure in the emergence of phenomenology uh, as a field, you know, leading up that would uh, kind of fell into the shadow of or fell to the wayside at the time of when Heidegger was writing. Uh, but that's that's a story for another day. But for Camus, Husserl, in his phenomenological approach, might at first glance appear to be giving us a way out of this obsession with transcendence, like saying, oh, we experience anxiety because we know there's a God and we are failing to live up to God's uh, wishes. Now, what Husserl does is he supplants, he replaces this singular truth, this capital T truth like God, with truths. And this is really at the core of many different approaches to uh, phenomenology. And that is acknowledging that the world doesn't just like exist out there. It is something that is engaged with, with humans who are subjective and have their own subjective experiences and perceptions of the world that can then act upon that world, therefore changing that world and changing themselves in a kind of um, reciprocal way. So despite the fact that it might appear for Camus, and he says it, it appears that there is a kind of potential in what Husserl does here, instead he says that Husserl only maintains reason. Despite the fact that Husserl gives us truths, we end up only with a universalizing of all of those truths. So it is like in, in Hegel, negating the negation. That is, if we are confronted with all of these truths that are all different from one another, the phenomenologist says, well, what binds them all together is they're not being the same, yet they all derive from the same point. There is this possible uh, recognition that humans are the guiding factor here. And phenomenology is very human-centered. It's very anthropocentric in that it centers humans as being the, the drivers behind all meaning. And so despite the differences, they're all bound together through this negating what, what sets them apart, negating the negation, they are then bound together in a kind of communal relationship to reason as, as human figures of, um, that can impart meaning onto the world. Now, despite this, Camus agrees that, to some extent, that the absurd is reserved only for humans, because humans are the only ones for Camus that think about the world, that consider the world as, uh, as absurd. And it is reserved for thinking subjects, where he says that the, uh, the, the cat doesn't think, or the, the cow doesn't think, at least as far as we know. The cat isn't wondering whether or not there's a god or whether or not the world cares about it. The cat just exists in the world. It just flows with the world. Now, I have no idea if this is true or not. I know very little about the philosophy of animals or maybe science or cognitive science of animals. I have no idea. 
So if anyone knows more about that than me, I'd love to hear about it. Very curious, but this is what Camus gives us here. So in the face of all this, what is the secret to a good life for Camus? Well, it is not to pursue a good life. That is not the answer to the good life. Instead, the key to the good life or the secret to the good life then is accepting life's lack of meaning and keeping the absurd alive, not trying to erase it. And suicide is actually opposed to this kind of acceptance because suicide is a lack of acceptance of the absurd. It is a taking that lack of acceptance to its logical conclusion of not being able to live with the absurd. Whereas accepting the absurd is a way to keep, uh, keep oneself alive or not to fall prey to suicide. And there's a kind of potential, a radical potential afforded here in terms of freedom, where on the one hand, it forecloses a divine freedom that would have implied transcendence because transcendence might imply, at least in Kantian terms, uh, the possibility of originality or of newness. By doing away with all that, there is opened up a new kind of freedom, a radical freedom that he calls uh, freedom of action or an, a, an absurd freedom, where because we have been made aware of our situation, we can then fare much better in it. So here we arrive at his thinking about Sisyphus, who I've already mentioned. Sisyphus is punished by having to roll a rock up a hill, uh, to push a rock up a hill, let it roll back down, then push it back up and do that for eternity. And Camus is interested in this tale, this myth, not because Sisyphus should be sympathized with, but because Sisyphus demonstrates a will to continue. You know, he's forced to do it, like he's punished and he has to do this. Uh, he is interested, or Camus is interested in Sisyphus's Sisyphus's demonstration of a will to continue in the face of the absurd. And Camus imagines the moment Sisyphus is walking back down the hill after he's pushed it up the pushed the boulder up the hill and let it roll back down, and then Sisyphus is walking down. Camus really thinks about those moments where Sisyphus is walking back down, looking upon the path he just walked, uh, pushing the, or push that boulder up the hill. And he thinks it necessary that in the face of that, because Sisyphus really doesn't have an option, any other option, that we consider uh, Sisyphus being happy. And that's, that's how he ends it here. And it's, it is a very nice and beautiful sentiment, but it has some issues where w one of the risks, I think, with this approach that uh, Camus lays out here is that it might make us acquiescent in a world that is unjust, or it might make us conflate the innate absurdity of, of, of life with the absurdity of oppression, with the absurdity of violence, that by disavowing or by ignoring, we risk continuing. Because if we just become acquiescent and say, oh, suffering is part of living, then we let injustice uh, go on and that that's not very cool so it is important in the face of this to recognize that there is a difference between injustice that is inflicted against certain people and the injustice that is inflicted on all humans just by virtue of being alive for uh, Camus and how that first one is something that we should all collectively be seeking to uh, do away with as best we can 
while the other is what we have to learn to live with. So, um, and anyways, that's just my opinion. Coming up with this distinction here, uh, I think is important. And yeah, if there's anything else that I might have uh, gotten wrong or something I should have included that I didn't, I'd love to hear about it. If you like what I did, like, share, subscribe, comment. I love reading all your comments. I don't have the time to respond to any of them. Uh, and yeah, uh, if you like what I did, do all those things and I'll catch you next time. Take care.